The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we started by checking in on emerging markets, which had been on a tear up until now. This week was a different story, though, with EM stocks falling the most in almost a year. The MSCI benchmark equity index falling over 3%, while 21 of 24 emerging market currencies tracked by Bloomberg also fell. The bad week for EM all started with the news out of Brazil. President Jair Bolsonaro fired the head of the CEO of state-run oil company Petrobras and has signed that the government is rolling back some market-friendly initiative to shore up his sinking popularity. So we spoke about this with this news and the broader outlook for EM with Emily Weiss, emerging market strategist at State Street. And we started by asking Emily about the impact of the commodity boom on EM, particularly Chile. Yeah, copper has been a key part of the outlook for Chile. And as you mentioned, February has been a particularly good month. Um, when we look going forward, partially it's been tied to the reflation, reflation story globally, but also particularly in China and other areas that have had this demand for industrial metals. On top of that, though, as you mentioned, Chile has had a really good vaccine rollout so far, and not just good compared to the emerging market countries, but good compared to developed market countries, where it's around the ninth in the world, uh, the ninth best number of vaccinations per 100 people. So certainly a lot is looking like it is going Chile's way. And as we go forward, it also stands out as a country that has a relatively low debt load and still additionally um, more room to stimulate hmm. going forward. OK, so low debt load. Feed across, therefore, to some other countries that, uh, from as we speak to the yield surge that we're seeing in U.S. and indeed globally, we have seen mm -hmm. the gas taken off the um, trade to a certain degree. MSCI or country, um, MSCI Emerging Market Index not faring well today. Where else is going to fare well, like Chile, where else isn't? Yeah, it's going to be key to watch how the, the U.S. bond story um, evolves, and particularly on the real yield side, how that trade evolves. But certainly what we've seen today is that emerging markets are going to be the most sensitive to this rising U.S. yield story. And at first, it seemed like we were in this situation where we could have a better growth outlook and still have low yields um, in the U.S., which would have been really Goldilocks for EM. Now it's seeming like there is going to be higher yields, and that, that will end up um, benefiting or sorry, hurting the countries that have the highest participation, uh, foreign participation in their debt markets. So areas um, like Malaysia, like South Africa, who end up having a decent foreign population share um, that could have potentially bring money back and reallocate it to higher U.S. Treasury yields. So uh, talk about what's happening in the currency space here, because I mean, it seemed like the narrative for a while before we got to talking about commodities and this rising yields, it was all about the direction of the dollar here. We saw some of those carry trades mm -hmm. last year break down, at least those that were uh, sort of tied to uh, the U.S. dollar. Is that carry trade still being taken? And if so, what's the funding currency right now? Yes, yeah, so there still is a carry trade at play, but Yields are notably, and the carry that you earn is is somewhat lower. Um, even I think Mexico stands out as having some of the highest um, carries still available, and yet 
they're still set to continue easing policy and cutting rates as we go forward. Um, so a lot of that rate advantage has been eroded, particularly look at Brazil, 2% um, for the CELIC rate. But at the same time, there is still carry to be picked up. The problem is whether you can justify the, the, the country fundamentals and the volatility with the carry you're getting. And unfortunately, that shorter carry has meant not as much, um, particularly against the dollar. I guess now what we're more looking at is either relative value plays, so doing finding country versus country comparison and sort of stock picking emerging markets among the group, hmm. um, or playing it by funding it through a, the Japanese yen or other funding currencies. So one of the stories of the last several months has been, and maybe it's not as intense as post-great financial crisis, but there is a lot of Chinese buying going on across commodities, across agricultural commodities, restocking of their uh, commodity stockpiles. How much is a lot of this discussion predicated on the continuation of trends in China, and what are you watching uh, out of there from a sort of a policy domestic economy standpoint? Yeah, so China policy has been meaningful. Um, I think, though, notably, it hasn't been as meaningful as it had been after the great financial crisis or even after 2015, um, where we saw sort of that, that EM currency sell-off. China stepped in more there to kind of provide comp policy accommodation that helped reflate the whole emerging market complex. When I look forward to this year, I think of China as more sort of stepping off the gas rather than putting their foot on the brake in terms of the policy space, um, certainly they are starting to become less accommodative. They're providing less of that juice, and that's mostly because there's less juice needed. Um, we've talked about the normalization in China before, and that certainly still holds true. So with that being said, we do expect authorities to start to take their foot off the gas, and that could take some of the steam out of that China-China proxies trade going forward. Emily, we were just prior to you coming on talking to our lead editor in emerging markets about Brazil. But your perspective on what happened over the course of the weekend and whether Brazil still an investment opportunity? Yeah, we are watching Brazil closely. Certainly the development since Friday um, isn't positive. I think the more important things to watch going forward are one, the inflation print this week, which will give more direction on how quickly the central bank will hike and by how much. And then additionally, the discussions over the fiscal um, package that's being put through Congress. Uh, that is incredibly popular for Bolsonaro amongst his uh, following and, and certainly being able to offset that with other fiscal measures will be taken very, very friendly by the market and could end up meaning that most of the bad news is already in the price. But that's a lot of ifs. And so, well, how do you then wrap that up for us here, Emily, here? Mm -hmm. I mean, for those folks, maybe, uh, I mean, we obviously talk to a lot of folks who are already sort of deep into this trade already, but there are folks who are sort of looking to diversify beyond uh, the U.S., beyond the developed markets, particularly now with the current economic, global economic cycle that we're in. I mean, what's mm -hmm. the general, I guess, view that you would give them with, with how you would approach this at this stage? Yeah, we are still cautiously optimistic emerging markets. Um, it, it still stands out as one of the better plays going into the rest of this year. That being said, there is going to be idiosyncratic stories. So we prefer playing it through um, the most exposed on the, the commodity front. Um, the countries that like Russia, Colombia, Chile um, have that close connection to the biggest reflation trade that we're seeing in, in the commodity space. Um, but staying, you know, maybe being a bit more cautious, places like Brazil waiting for some of the domestic issues to sort of work themselves out before um, dipping another toe in. Uh, finally, and just real quickly, I mean, U.S. policy in terms of not just this current stimulus, but perhaps a bigger, the Build Back Better plan, if that happens later this year, mm -hmm. how much does that in theory provide yet even further impulse uh, across some of the EMs you're watching? 
Yeah, that's a great point. It does provide that additional impulse. And really, um, what's been key is making sure that it's a global growth-led recovery and not just uh, a growth recovery led by either the U.S. or China, which, as we've seen um, in different varying forms, can lead to varied outperformance. Um, but getting more countries onto that fiscal impulse and onto that spending on infrastructure would certainly be a positive. This week, we also saw a surge in commodity prices and everything from oil and copper to coffee that has Wall Street banks gearing up for the arrival of what may be a new super cycle, an extended period during which demand drives prices well above their long-run trend. One of the key drivers is the massive stimulus spending by governments as they juice up their economies following pandemic lockdowns. So we got some perspective about the boom in the sector and what it could mean for inflation from Scott Irwin, the Lawrence J. Norton Chair of Agricultural Marketing at the University of Illinois. He's an expert in futures and commodity markets. So we started by asking Scott what the single biggest driver is of the agricultural commodity price boom. China is the number one answer. Uh, they've uh, already bought uh, over 2 billion bushels of corn and soybeans for the current marketing year. And there are other factors, but that's the key. And if we see the prices surge, does that, where are they drawing it from? Is there a key issue that it's, that we're going to see the price increases here in the United States when you're just going out and buying your cereal, for example, because mm. it's so interesting that we speak about food prices on the rise, but that doesn't seem to show up in the inflationary pressure, Scott. Right. Excellent question. Uh, that's because sometimes there's a, a little confusion about terminology. Uh, when we're talking about the price of basically raw materials that go into making things that you buy at the grocery store, except for milk, meat, and eggs, about 80% of the cost of the food items you buy at the grocery store are processing, transportation, marketing, and advertising. So you can increase the price on the 20% that the farm level value of the crop or uh, commodity represents and not increase the overall inflation level at the grocery store very much. I am curious here uh, about, Scott, about some of the supply uh, issues. I mean, on one hand, I've seen some data out of the USDA that shows that we're not really seeing a, a huge increase in plantings, or at least not anticipated increase in plantings here in the U.S. And then, of course, we know down in Latin America, there are some weather issues uh, that are holding back plantings there. How much of that is going to factor into uh, any sort of further price appreciation that we see going forward? Well, it's sure going to be interesting. That's one of the limitations. When you have one of these kind of big, unexpected uh, demand shocks, you could argue whether it was unexpected or not with China, um, it, it does take a while for the world to respond. It typically takes a couple crop cycles. Uh, we have a huge USDA reporting report on prospective plantings coming out at the end of March, and we'll get our first readings. I expect U.S. farmers uh, to kind of go back to a mantra from the 70s, which was fence row to fence row. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to plant a lot of everything, mm -hmm. but particularly corn and soybeans. Do we have a sense, so we talk about this uh, Chinese demand cycle, the restocking of their, uh, you know, their their, um, you know, their goods. Do we have a sense of how long this cycle can last or how long such cycles have lasted in the past? Well, you know, uh, China's uh, soybean appetite is voracious and it, you know, was just up and up and up for uh, 
10 years just kept setting records until we went into the trade war with China. So that's a, uh, you know, it can go on a while. My own personal belief is that we'll see a continued strong buying from China on soybeans. Uh, corn is the real wild card. We really don't know how much of that is. They're just rebuilding stocks, uh, feeding more because of uh, rebuilding their hog herd after the African swine fever. There's just a lot of uncertainty about where this corn is going into China. Scott, speak to that a little bit more. The trade breakdown that we saw between the U.S. and China, are people, are farmers anticipating that that's well healed now when they're going to be trying to drive up their plantings? Are they assuming that China can be their buyer of choice or that China hasn't pivoted away in the longer term to Latin America, for example? Well, I think farmers here are very well attuned the um, long-term possibility that China is going to try to diversify its suppliers. I don't think there's any doubt that China is going to do that, but there are such big buyers right now that I think that that's a secondary consideration. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now Texans are trying to pick up the pieces after last week's massive blackouts. A lot of thought is being put into energy infrastructure in an effort to keep a disaster like that from happening again. So we spoke about the path ahead and what it means for the future of clean energy with K.R. Sridhar, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Bloom Energy. We asked him how their technology, such as hydrogen fuel cells, could make a power grid more robust. So uh, thank you so much for having me. And what we saw in Texas is just an indication of what every other state and every other city in this country should expect. That's not an abnormality. That is the new reality that we are facing in this uh, world where natural disasters have increased exponentially, going from about mm. six a year in the year 2000 to 2010 to $22 billion plus natural disasters in 2020 alone, right? So the grid, we have to focus on resiliency and the reality is we have not invested in resiliency because lawmakers don't demand it and market does not reward it. And if we don't fix that, unfortunately at a time when always on electricity is not just a luxury or a privilege, it is necessity mm. for everyday life. And at that time, there is no market mechanism and there is no regulatory mechanism 
to ask for resiliency. We have to fix that. Yeah. That's the problem. Is it coming, KR, and, and in particular, in the aftermath of the dire situation that we saw in Texas, are you getting more phone calls? Are corporates wanting to come to you? Not only is states, are legislators wanting to come to you to say, look, how do we make our power grids more resilient? Yes, we are speaking to uh, both elected officials uh, as well as uh, you know, uh, corporate customers asking the question. So let me break that down into you know, three different ways to you know, think about this. The first is, we need to improve the resiliency of the grid overall for everybody better than where it is. The American Society of Civil Engineers gave it a failing D minus grade, our, our grid. Why? Because on average, the, the age of the grid is greater than 50 years. It's past the design life for useful operation. That's where it is. Fixing that is going to take time. In the meantime, what do we need to do? We need to make sure that critical infrastructure such as hospitals, nursing homes, wa water treatment facilities, water pumping facilities, uh, essential services are all protected better than the average grid should be because they're essential to everyday life and safety. We can do that with new technologies. Thank God we have those new technologies today that are not only proven and capable of building microgrids and offering resiliency for those critical infrastructure, yeah. but they're economically viable. The problem is there is not a construct in the marketplace and there's not regulation that allows this to happen. Uh, talk a little bit more about that because, I mean, this isn't something that you can really do without regulation or without really the involvement of government. I mean, the, the idea yeah. of sort of uh, any sort of changes or massive uh, changes to the grid, uh, it's, it's going to be a government or at least to some degree a societal project. Uh, do you have the buy-in or do you think you're going to have the buy-in uh, from the policymakers? I think we're going to have the buy-in and here's why. Uh, people's lives are at stake. Right. So, you know, it's you know, it's not just Texas. Let's take the California wildfires. Right. Uh, the problem in California is if a essential service decides to say, let me take my power density in my own hands because I'm not getting it from my utility. I don't want to go through days of power outage, which is called the PSPS events in California. Uh, I. I want to put my own microgrid. The current monopoly era regulation makes that company, makes that essential service, pay a punitive price for departing the grid. Not only is it not uh, encouraged, not only is it not incentivized, it is, you know, it is penalized for doing that. So we are in discussions with lawmakers and regulators to say you absolutely have to change that, and we are having these discussions right now. Uh, the same thing is going to happen across the country, and I think federally the Biden administration needs to say there needs to be a minimum standard for safety of the right. electric grid in this day of IoT and everything being connected electrically. Uh, not having electricity is not a luxury. Hmm. You know, uh, it is just not acceptable.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. And the meme trade is back. Ahead of Friday's close, GameStop was on track for its best week this month. Amid a flurry of day trader activity, the video game retailer jumping about 200% on the week. On Friday, the stock staged another late afternoon rebounder as amateur investors continued to promote it across social media platforms like Reddit. More than 75 million shares changed hands heading into the final hour of the week, more than triple what it's seen in the past two weeks. So we went back to the man that knows GameStop best, Rod Alzman. He's the co-proprietor of GMEDD.com, the longtime GameStop bull, who we spoke to a few weeks ago during that first run-up. And we started by asking Rod about the key piece of news since we had last spoken with him the departure of GameStop CFO, and whether this was a sign that the strategic pivot is accelerating. Well, Joe, thanks for having me back on. Um, I'd, I'd say there's more than just the CFO departing. We got some hires that happened uh, between last time you all had me on in late January, and now we had a new chief technology officer added. We had a new SVP of customer care, a new uh, VP of fulfillment. So we had those three ads, I think, two uh, from two former Amazon execs, one former Chewy exec, the chewification of GameStop continues. So we've got the CFO vacancy right now. Um, we'll see who takes the reins there. But I, I think that they're making progress in the direction that Ryan laid out. So, I mean, articulate for us sort of what that progress is, is or at least uh, what the general vision is for GameStop. Is this going to be that brick-and-mortar retailer that we kind of knew it to be years ago where you walked in and bought a game? Or is this more about some of the online offerings and the, the ability to buy things in-game? Is that going to be the expansion here? I mean, I think the supplier relationships GameStop has are the place that I believe they can get some better leverage points on outside of the brick and mortar channel. So given that they have the purchasing uh, through both the OEs as well as the publishers, are there ways in which they can create GameStop exclusive digital content, perhaps subscription-based to get a better multiple on revenues associated with that sort of a model? Um, we haven't seen that come from the company yet. However, uh, I think those of us that are monitoring Mr. Cohen very closely see he continues to follow a very select group of companies. Um, we saw him follow, I think, Electronic Arts, Activision Blizzard, et cetera. So one would presume if we're trying to read those tea leaves, uh, like we are reading his um, frog and ice cream tweets, that he's got something going on behind the scenes. Um, so, so I think, though, one thing I do still want to highlight that I think people keep missing is that it is not a mall-based retailer. 
optimistically. Um, I was looking up in the transcripts from the fourth quarter earnings call they had, and they talked in 2018, excuse me. And in the transcript, it specifically says outside the U.S., 90% of our stores are mall-based, but inside the U.S., it's reversed, and 90% of the stores are strip mall-based. So mm. I think the retail implications are significantly different when we think about a strip mall-based retailer um, and the foot traffic implications, the lease renewals, et cetera. So I just, that's something I think is important to dispel. People keep saying mall-based retailer, and it's not quite that. Rod, it's interesting. It's, we're trading in currently at a price of 108 on GameStop, and it's not—it's way off the heady heights of excess of 400 that it once hit. But last time you were on, we we asked you as to whether they should make the most of this moment with an elevated share price, where they should share, sell stock and, and reinvest. There were some calendar technicalities as to why they didn't when we were at those heady heights. But would you like to still see them do that now? So, Caroline, that. Your point is good, and I know that Reuters had that exclusive that I think helped us all understand the SEC-related implications of why they didn't take the action that um, we perhaps hoped they would. But, you know, look, the price, I, there, I think Joe and I talked about it in, in the Odd Lots pod, Joe and Tracy and I, and there wasn't, there's not a compelling need for them to raise capital just to raise capital because the market observers think the price is elevated. There's, they're going to be generating cash flow this quarter personally thinking that they're going to be a bit over a buck EPS-wise. Um, it's not a function of a need to raise the capital until we know what the roadmap is. So I wouldn't want them to dilute shareholders until we understand where the prospective dilution is going to be going towards, whether they're going to be investing in more fulfillment upgrades or investing in some of their digital properties. You know, We still have yet to see that, and I don't know that we're going to see anything until the fourth quarter earnings call in about a month's time. So, you know, I think we're in the same situation we were in late January, where given the material non-public information the company's privy to, they're not in a position to raise capital, and they don't need to. Although it would have been nice to issue it $500 right. a share. Rod, of course, you know, having been in the stock and part of the story for a long time, you were part of the crew that used to watch those um, live streams from uh, the Roaring Kitty on YouTube, DFV on Reddit, and of course now we all know his name is Keith Gill, who everybody finally got a chance to meet properly. Uh, when he testified in front of Congress last week, what was that like for you watching your old, uh, your old friend there and how do you think he sort of represented uh, the, the GameStop bulls, the, the believers? Yeah, Keith, super articulate guy, smart guy. He's not a cat. He does like the stock. We know those things about him. <laughs> and enjoyed what he had to say. You know, to be quite frank, I think he was the most human on the entire panel Definitely. if you watched the entirety of the hearings. And he came off as somebody knowledgeable but also relatable, unlike maybe some of the more type responses. So I think he did all of the fellow GameStop investment community a really great, great job. Yeah. Um, I, I know it's funny. He, I think it was the day after posted his update on Reddit that he added 50,000 shares at, I think you could back into the math was like 3870-ish cost basis. So just above the bottom. So, you know, in terms of a uh, tactical trader, it looks like Keith did a pretty good job. Now, I, I think he likes the stock though, and I don't think he's selling right now. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.